Welcome to this podcast for Classical 91.5. I'm Julia Figueres. This month, your Rochester Philharmonic Orchestra is having a double suffrage celebration. The first of the two concerts offers up a play, a musical world premiere, and lots of women composers. RPO Music Director Ward Stair is with us, as is playwright Mark Mobley and composer Gemma Peacock, all here to take, no pun intended, a peek at week one. Welcome all to the studio. Ward, putting this together was really something else, I bet. Oh, yeah. Lots of great things to choose from. Um, but I think this um, this first program in particular is, is really fascinating because we have such a wide range of musical languages and sounds and um, of course the second half um, with the play having you know the actors involved and uh, so much going on I think it's going to be a real um, delight for the audiences uh, to be able to hear just so much different kind of music and different kinds of artistic expressions in one evening. Now Mark if you don't mind we're going to talk about the music in the first half and then you're on deck because we will talk about your project that you put together with Ward. Uh, so let's start with what you've chosen. We have the Fanny uh, Mendelssohn Hensel Overture in C Major, a woman completely disregarded by every man in her life except her husband, who took her very seriously. That's right. Where did you find this op- overture? Because, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good on finding these things, and I've never seen this one. Well, it was recently um, edited and re published, I guess, um, thanks to Joanne Folletta, actually. She's the editor uh, on this edition, and I'm really glad that she sort of brought this piece back to life because it's a lovely overture, beautiful work, um, got a lot of um, charming melodies, and it's, it, you know, it's very much in the classical style, as you would expect. Um, I like to tell people when I'm talking about the concert that uh, if you see in the program book Mendelssohn, and you hear it, you might think, wow, why, why am I not familiar with this? Uh, it's great Mendelssohn. And you're right, it is great Mendelssohn, but it's not Felix, it's Fanny. Um, and so I'm really happy that her music is starting to get recognized and get uh, the attention that it deserves because she wrote hundreds of pieces in her lifetime, and they're wonderful. She was every bit as talented as her brother. Uh, but of course, in those days, uh, you couldn't be a female and be a composer. And it was just awful. And now we can. It's interesting because her brother was not really supportive of her work. In fact, did he like steal from her from time to time? I'm sure he probably did. In fact, in this overture, sometimes I hear a little bit of Midsummer Night's Dream and you know there's <laughs> you think, "Hmm, who who actually came up with that idea? I wonder." It's very interesting. Yeah. yeah, you know, the Mendelssohns both we both we lost both too young and yeah. and uh that's kind of the sadness in that family because they were both geniuses. Mm-hmm. For sure. Oh, uh, you know, when you think about Mozart and his sister, for example, we never see anything that Manerl ever wrote, if, if indeed she did. So it was kind of nice, at least, that there is that that Fanny's music is on record and that we have it uh, to listen to. Absolutely. Uh, so then the other one, we're going to skip over Gemma and come back to her. The other one that you chose is from the 20th century. Uh, the wonderful composer, African-American composer, Julia Perry. Um, what can you tell us about her? Well, <coughs> um, much like uh, the story with Fanny, I mean, she did not get the recognition she deserved um, for a long time. And I think only in the last few years are people starting to program her music more. And um, I think 
she's an enormously talented artist and uh, this piece the short piece for orchestra is there's a lot going on in it it's very dynamic um, it's got <clears throat> everything from these huge powerful complicated uh, moments that you know the orchestra is just really um, so um, active and then it's got very calm moments that are sort of um, you know thoughtful and uh, introspective and it's it's got everything in between so huge range in this piece very challenging piece I have to say there are a lot of tricky um, rhythmical things that things have to fit together in a very precise way it's well crafted music um, and it takes a lot of time to to get the details worked out if Julia Perry was trained in Tanglewood she was uh, she studied with Nadia Boulanger. She was a, a brilliant composer who was roundly ignored. And I wonder, Ward, how much of this equation was she roundly ignored because she was a woman and was she roundly ignored because she was African-American in the classical world? Well, I was going to say she kind of had a double whammy against her because, you know, being a female and being an African-American, uh, you know, when she was at her peak was just not not a good place to be in if you wanted to get your music performed and published and um, it's really it's really a shame well in between those two pieces is a work by Gemma Peacock and we're so happy to have Gemma Peacock actually in our studio today the piece is called all on fire so I'm just a love the title of the piece uh, B want you Gemma to explain where all on fire comes from well, hi, and thank you so much for having me. It's um, really nice to be in Rochester, and I'm incredibly excited to hear this piece tomorrow being premiered. Um, I was approached earlier this, well, sorry, last year to write a piece in honor of Susan B. Anthony, and I had a kind of superficial knowledge of who she was, um, what she means in American history. But of course, as you can hear, I'm not from here, so... Um, <laughs> I, I started to approach um, the story of American suffragists with the background knowing a lot more about New Zealand suffragists. Um, and in our history, we in New Zealand became the first country to grant universal uh, suffrage. So it's a really powerful um, and important project for me. We, you were way above, way ahead of the learning curve on this one than we were. Yeah, I <laughs> I think we had um, a very different set of historical circumstances for in which women, you know, were able to um, achieve suffrage earlier. Um, Susan B. Anthony was also fighting for other kinds of civil rights and um, racial equality alongside, you know, um, great Rochester people. Um, and so when I started to think about how to write a piece in honor of Susan B. Anthony, I came up here to Rochester at the start of a um, three-month-long road trip and went through the Susan B. Anthony house, uh, just like Mark, <laughs> and um, learned about how much she actually gave up to be able to do the work that she did. Um, she talked a lot about wanting to be married and have children, but knowing that if she did, she would not be able to continue her work. And she had other people that she was fighting with, but she had the freedom with her her privilege and her societal position to be able to do that. Um, so during the course of the summer when I was traveling around the States, I started writing this piece 
thinking of how fierce she was, but also the sacrifices she made to be able to fight for what she felt was right and necessary freedoms. Did you get, did you, um, Ward, approach Gemma for this project? How did you find her? Well, we <clears throat> um, we were doing a lot of uh, research. I was asking around uh, a lot of my friends and you know other composers, and actually, it was Jennifer Higdon, I think, who um, you know we had just worked on uh, the harp concerto, and uh, so we were great friends by that point. And, and I said, you know, um, I really want to commission something for our celebration of Susan B. Anthony. And I know you've mentored a lot of people and you really, you know, have your finger on the pulse of who's out there, who's hot. And I said, who can you recommend? And um, so she gave us uh, a few names, I think. Um, and we listened to some samples uh, of the various composers' works. And, you know, we just sort of zeroed in on Gemma. And uh, then when we reached out to her, she accepted, which we were thrilled about. <laughs> so The title, All on Fire, comes from this great quote by Susan B. Anthony. How can you not be all on fire I really believe I shall explode if some of you young women don't wake up and raise your voice in protest against the impending crime of this nation upon new islands it has clutched from other folks. Um, the more things change, the more things stay the same, mm -hmm. I guess. Where did you find that wonderful quote, Gemma? Oh, gosh. I can't remember exactly where I came across it. Uh, I read a couple of books about Susan and... I was also just searching for something that would capture, you know, the power of her um, because there are a lot of children's books about who she was and there's a sort of a folk um, telling of who she was. Um, but my, my encounters with her have been all about how intelligent and how fierce she was. Um, and I think All on Fire really nicely encapsulates that. All right, so let's talk about, even though it's impossible to ex actually explain what music sounds like, <laughs> um, what are we going to hear when we listen to All on Fire? Let's start with you, Ward. Oh, boy. Um, when you got this, what did you hear? I remember when I first looked at the score, um, one of the first things that struck me was the range uh that Gemma uses from, you know, the most, as she was just saying, fierce passages that are, you know, very, um, it, it's a kind of aggression, you know, aggression is kind of a, a negative uh, term, but it's, for Susan, it's not her being aggressive, it's her being strong, but then there's also aggression of people toward her and the resistance that she encountered that she had to battle against her whole life. Well, she was being assertive. They yes. were being aggressive. That's right. That's right. And I think Gemma captures both sides of that uh, really well. And um, the way she's able to then contrast with um, much more um, calm passages, I think, is quite beautiful. And, I, and the other thing that I noticed right away is her use of silence in the score is very effective and powerful. And I'm sure she'll uh, tell us more about how she was inspired to do that. But um, those are the biggest, you know, sort of points that stood out to me when I first looked at the score. So, yes, tell us about the use of silence <laughs> in music, Gemma. <laughs> oh, I could talk forever about the use of silence. Um, <laughs> but one of my favorite orchestral pieces that uses silence in a similar kind of way is Mountain by David Lang. And he... I heard him talk about writing this piece. Um, he was looking out his window at different facades of this mountain, and he ha 
he opens the piece with these huge chords and then just the power of having nothing after them, nothing on either side, really struck me. So when I was thinking about writing something for the Rochester Philharmonic, um, I wanted it to be a really powerful piece. And I think there's nothing quite like having that many people sitting on a stage and that many people in an audience just kind of holding their breath. So that's where I I took that idea from. What has have the rehearsals been like for you, Gemma? Is this sounding like you thought it would? Yeah, it was um, really nerve-wracking. We had a workshop in November, I think, mm-hmm. um, which was an incredible opportunity as a younger composer to be able to try things out and then <laughs> nix out the parts that weren't working so well um, and boost some of the things that worked a little better. Um, so this week we have had two rehearsals already and it's sounding fantastic. The The orchestra is an incredible orchestra and uh, when the parts that Ward was talking about come in with the really assertive and aggressive um, and industrial sounding parts come in, you just you can feel the power coming off the instruments. Great. Um, uh, are, is this set in stone or are you still axing things out? Um, for <laughs> for tomorrow night, it's set in stone, and then <laughs> after that, I I think um, I've been composing for a while now, and I've learned that you know there's always things that you can do for the next performance to uh, change things and and move things around to make them more playable, or um, you know, uh, but I try not to futz too much because I think each piece captures a place and time as well, you know. Um, so I, I will probably make a few changes in the future, but not before tomorrow night. <laughs> what is the moment like as a composer of letting go when it's not yours anymore? For me, it's one of pure relief. So <laughs> I can't do anything anymore. I can't worry. Um, I think composing can be a very isolating um, activity because you're sitting in your studio or your bedroom or wherever you compose working on this thing and being in your own head for a long, long period. Uh, So the point where you can finally hand over the music to someone else to actually bring it to life, that's both a huge relief and um, a joy to hear it actually become a thing. I I think we should bring our our playwright into this conversation right at this point, Mark Mobley, because playwriting is also a bit of a solitary activity. It is. So... Uh, the two of you have been sitting in your respective rooms uh, writing about the exact same woman. And <laughs> um, what is it like for you when you let go of a piece? Or do you never let go? I had to hit send at one point to get it <laughs> produced. Um, my experience was a little different because it's a documentary play. So the script actually largely rises or falls on the quality of the interviews that go into making the script. Um, everything that's in the play was something said to me or by me over the course of interviews back in June with different people here in Rochester. And the only editing, the, the editing is very, very light. Only some small cuts and slight rearrangements. Um, but it is, it's it's stressful. I mean, I think 
and, and maybe not as stressful as writing a large orchestra piece, but uh, but it is stressful. Now, where were you born and raised, Mark? Born in Pittsburgh. In Pittsburgh. Which was anomalous because uh. my, my father was stationed with the Associated Press there as a photographer, but we headed back down south when I was six months old. So I grew up outside Atlanta, and now I live in Athens, Georgia, and teach at UGA. So uh, I, I would love to, to know um, your take on Susan B. and how aware you, you were of her. Uh, I was born and raised in this city, and um, I've lived in the Northeast for my whole life. So Susan B. has been, for me and for Ward, has been a major force in our historical lives, no matter where we go, but not so much for you, Gemma? No, I, to be honest, I think I was more aware of Frederick Douglass, um, partly because when I first moved to the US, I lived in Harlem. And so up in Harlem, um, African-American figures of his historical importance are really celebrated. But as you well know, women um, are still not as celebrated in Central Park in New York. They're, they're trying to get the first statue of a woman in there. Um, so I, I knew vaguely of Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, but um, I think, yeah, it's it's been a lovely journey to learn more about her and what she went through to try to get the vote. And I became aware of Susan B. Anthony through the piece that the Rochester Philharmonic is playing next week, mm -hmm. The Mother of Us All, mm -hmm. which I fell in love with in high school because my high school library had a recording, the old Raymond Leopard oh, recording. Yeah. You were a weird that, kid in high school. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I remain so today. Uh, but yeah, I would go into, I had sixth period open, and I would go into the band room and listen to Mother of Us All and other things. Uh, so yeah, I can quote some of it from memory yeah when i uh, first sorry to jump in but when i first called mark about this project i was describing what we were doing for the you know entire festival and then when i told him we were doing mother of us all he like practically leapt through the phone and i was shocked that he not only <laughs> knew it but loved it as much as he does sorry that's I just right. had to throw that in there yeah, i think i sang some of it yeah <laughs> so did she stay with you beyond the music yeah and it only became the experience became only more intense when i came up to do research I uh, came up in March of last year to meet with the creative team of the orchestra and toured the Susan B. Anthony house. And on that day, not only was the tour fantastic, it was led by a 15-year-old girl. And she's in the play now, so. How did you find Mr. Mobley here? Well, uh, we actually worked together a couple years ago, three years ago, something like that. Yeah, now four? Yeah, it's 2016. Time flies. Um, on a, another project down in Georgia uh, where Mark did a very similar thing. He wrote a documentary uh, play in, on the subject of uh, race relations, actually, in, in the South, which was a very uh, powerful work, as you can imagine. And um, I just, that stayed with me. I was really uh, impressed, and it was a powerful experience, as I said. And so when I was thinking about ways to honor Susan B. and, and sort of um, outside-the-box ideas for this festival, that kept coming back into my mind. And I thought, you know, I, I bet that would work well for Susan B. also. So then I gave Mark a call, and he was, he you know, didn't really take any convincing. He was right on board, very excited about it from the beginning. How did you, first of all, how did you choose the title? I love the title, True and Devoted. Where it, did this come from? It's a Susan B. Anthony quote. It's a quote, yeah. Yeah, and it's, a, it's in the text of the play. 
we'll find it. I've read the play. I'll have to go back and read it again, apparently. Um, and and um, when you approached this project, how did you decide that you would structure it this way? The first step was to speak with members of orchestra staff and get, so I'm not Rochesterian, obviously, to speak with members of the orchestra staff about which women I should interview. And so I spent a fair amount of time you know, with a, well, we had a, we started with a long list of names, and I was I on it. Uh, Darn, <laughs> you're in the sequel. Okay. <laughs> Good answer. Um, and then, hopefully, if it's successful, the the five women I talk to are complementary. Their stories mm -hmm. talk to each other. They're they're different but they have similar enthusiasms for Susan B. Anthony and her message. Um, you're editing, right? No. Oh. Keep going. I just, I, just, I, just, I just went off topic from the question. No, you didn't. No, you okay. didn't. How you structured it. So, so, yeah. So, you're, so, the, so the structure you're, so you're, is... You're still on topic because you're talking about how you picked the women and how you structured it. Right. Um, and then once I got the women to do the interviews... Um, it's, uh, we begin with the mayor, and then we move on to Mayor Lovely Warren, and we move on to Elaine Spall, city councilwoman, and then we move on to Catherine Cerulli, who's head of the Susan B. Anthony Institute at the University of Rochester, and then Tamara Lee, who's at the LGBTQ Center here in town and edits a magazine called Empty Closet, and then we move on to Lola Diocentis, who I mentioned earlier, the 15-year-old tour guide at the, at the Susan B. Anthony house. But there's a little break in between Tamara Lee and Lola where the Lola character gives the final scene of the tour of the Susan B. Anthony house in which Susan B. Anthony passes away in her bedroom. And that's where she basically says that she may not finish the race, but there are other women who are true and devoted who will carry on. And in the midst of each of these are musical interstitials, I guess, for a better, lack of a better word. It's underscoring, It's actually. underscoring, yeah. So how was the music chosen? The music is wonderful. Uh, you begin with uh, the sixth fanfare for the Uncommon Woman by Joan Tower, and then uh, continue to roll through. There's Hale Stork and Schubert paired. Um, I'm so happy to see Mary Alice Smith there, movement from Mary Alice Smith, the um, English Victorian composer, Copland, and finally uh, Dvorak. So how did you pick the music that was going to underscore everything? Well, we threw around uh, a lot of different options, you know, trying to discuss it, what would fit. It, it needed to be something that was close to the, the the character, you know, of the message that we were looking for so that that would work. It also couldn't be too overwhelming in terms of, you know, the vault because we don't want to lose the voices. So it, it's a fine balance, uh, no pun intended, trying to uh, pick these pieces. But uh, And we also, of course, had to think about the timing. Um, and uh, so, you know, we went through probably four or five different iterations of the list. and And then we also had to make sure that 
everything we wanted was available. We had to make some last minute substitutions because of rental issues or other things like that. Boring stuff, you know. Uh, but I think what we arrived at uh, works very well. And um, we went through it all this morning, actually, for the timings. And I think the flow is going to work. Yeah. And there's also some, because there's music by Adolphus Hale Stork, there's Rochesterian music right. Right. as well. And African American, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's he's ours, so you know we're we're pretty proud of Adolphus as yeah. well. <laughs> so you know, this is nice because some people think it's art, but in the in the end, it's really just math. How long do we need? <laughs> I that piece of music. It's a little bit of both, right? There's a lot of <laughs> math in music. That's what yeah. they always say. <laughs> so when we look at at true and devoted, what message um, were you hoping, or conclusion are you hoping that we will draw when we have finished? hearing and seeing this play. I'll start with you, Ward. Well, I think that um, seeing one of the things that I asked Mark to sort of shoot for from the very beginning was, you know, kind of trying to do a mix of the history of Susan B. Anthony, of course, uh, and Rochester being her home, and then, you know, sort of like a past historical, a sort of like current like her life kind of thing and then current modern day how she affects people now still and then how she inspires the future so kind of three tenses you know we wanted to hit on all those and and I think Mark has done a good job of that and ending with Lola's uh, scene I think is brilliant because it just you know talks about that's you know what's better in looking to the future than youth you know and um, so I think it I hope that it will um bring into people's minds into sort of the forefront of people's minds you know how significant Susan B. Anthony was uh, and the fact that she lived right here in Rochester is very special for us Um, so I hope that that number one is a takeaway and then I hope that um, people just think about you know the work that remains to be done and what the future might look like if we have more people like Susan B. Anthony. And Lola is a lovely touch at the end because she's not just youth, but she's youth discussing the past. Exactly. Right. She's youth who right. has um, absorbed the past, something that doesn't always happen with, with especially young women and the feminist movement and Susan B. Um, it's almost as if we got the vote and then what? And I, I see in this uh, many women who have now... We have the vote, but now we have new challenges. Right. Yeah, but I think one thing to take away, if if the play does its job, and we all do our jobs, is to fulfill the title of the play, to show that there are women in Rochester who are, in fact, true and devoted, women who are all on fire, so that we're in, we're in good hands now and in the coming generation. Not having to name names, did anybody say no when you proposed this to your, your list? Yes. Really? <laughs> Really? Yes. Very interesting. And a little disappointing. Very disappointing. Yeah, it surprised me too. I was, yeah. But you never know. So, of the thread of the women that did say yes, yes, and these wonderful women that you talked to, do you see a thread beyond woman? Do you see a thread in the personalities, the, the soul of these women? These are all women who think about others as much as they think about themselves, and intensely and in and in very very thoughtful ways. Um, their stories uh, 
the stories are very personal. Um, it's not it's not an historical lecture by any stretch of the imagination. It's it's extremely contemporary. Um, Elaine Spall, for example, talks about people not exercising their right to vote. Um, Tamara Lee talks about her children. Um, and yeah. and she talks about the fact that the feminist movement was for the long time predominantly white women. Yeah. She's African American, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and a lot of and all of these topics generated a lot of really interesting discussions with the cast as well. So. And one of the things that you said that really strikes me is you said these are women who care, take better, take more care of others than, than their own. And this is something that Lola says about Susan B. Anthony at the end, yeah. when she's giving her tour. She says, you know, she took the smaller bedroom so the guest could have the better room. So I guess, in a way, maybe we all have a little bit of Susan B. Anthony in us, or at least we'd hope. Exactly. So when the audience walks out, what do you want them to walk out with, Ward? A feeling of optimism and hope for the future. Because there are significant challenges that these women discuss, very serious challenges, things like racism, things like poverty. So how does one find hope past that? Mark? Because you find it through the thoughtful solutions that they propose during, during the piece itself. I mean, Catherine Cerulli talks about just this overwhelming amount of scholarship that she's doing on issues pertaining to women all around the world. Um, that, that her work, just to pick one person in the play, her work is not confined to the, Rochester, the greater Rochester metropolitan area. Her work literally affects women all over the world. Women in Laos, for example. Women in Delhi. Uh, so I think there's there's to go back to what worth it. There is hope for the future. There are people there are people working on the issues that affect us all, not just women. I want to thank you all for coming in. It's um, an extraordinary vision, Ward. Uh, if you were going to say this is how we're going to salute Susan B. Anthony, I would not have come up with this. <laughs> and uh, I I tip my hat to you. Well, thank you. For finding something different and interesting, and um, I think something that, thanks to Gemma and thanks to Mark, will be really compelling as well. So um, thanks to Ward Stair and Gemma Peacock and Mark Mobley for talking with me today. If you would like some information about the Rochester Philharmonic season, you can go to rpo.org. I'm Julia Figueres. This podcast is a production of WXXI Public Broadcasting.